Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. We good today? Everybody's good? Man, you sounded great in worship. You got a lot of energy, which I love. It's Sunday. We're glad you're here. It's fall break week for Cherokee County Schools. So if some of your friends that are normally here, normally sit beside you, are like on a cruise today, and you're sinning in your heart because you're angry at them, that's okay. It's forgivable today during this week only. But uh, no, we are glad that you're here on this fall break uh, version of Canton Church. And it's a great season, a great time. You heard a little bit from Pastor Matt just a minute ago. But a lot of great things last week that we talked about on Vision Sunday. Uh, we talked about this idea that we're doing the renovation downstairs, which is great. We're excited about that. We're going to build a new worship space, a new, bigger lobby space to accommodate more people, maybe twice as many people as we can fit into this room, which we're excited about. Um, we also talked about the fact that we now, as we negotiate that lease, we have a purchase option on the entire building now, all 36,000 square feet, which we intend to exercise uh, towards the conclusion of our lease, which is so exciting for us because it gives us a pathway towards permanence for our church, which we have not had to this point. Uh, and then we talked about multiplying the vision and what God is doing here into new communities, into new cities and towns in the surrounding area here in Georgia and even beyond uh, over the next uh, 10 to 15 years. And we're just thankful for what God's doing and really believing that as a part of all of this transition and all the things that God has been doing, that we really believe that the time is right and the Lord's leading us to change the name of our church from Canton Church to Generations Church. So you heard Pastor Matt say that a minute ago. Maybe you were like, what? What did he say? What did he say? Um, we're talking about this idea that our heart has always been for generations, that Deuteronomy 6 tells us that your faith is for you, your children, and your children's children, that we want you to possess your faith and then pass it on to those who are coming after you and be on the lookout for those around you who just need someone to breathe life into them. And so um, for us, our heart's always been for generations. All generations matter here. And so for us, we believe that to multiply that vision is really to go under uh, the banner of Generations Church. So we'll make that move later this fall. But it's really exciting. We're thankful for that. One of the things that we talked about last week is that this renovation downstairs, uh, it comes with a cost, and we recognize that. And so we've sought the wisdom and the counsel of many and our trustees and the people that are a part of that decision-making process. And this entire project's going to cost us for all of the downstairs renovation, everything that needs to be done down there, all of the renovation upstairs that's necessary to prepare this room to be our grade school environment on Sundays, our youth room on Wednesday night, the elevator and stairs to join the two floors together. The total cost of that renovation is going to be about $750,000. But God, in his great provision to us and his grace to us, um, had a family in our church that stepped up to say, hey, we want to provide a pledge, a pledge gift of the first $300,000. And so for our church family, we joined together to say, let's raise the additional $450,000 necessary to really finish this project off. And so we asked people last week to make 24-month pledges to help us raise that last $450,000. So there are pledge cards in your seat. If you do not call this your church home, then there's no obligation to you. But if this is your church home, we are asking you to participate on some level. There's no pledge or gift too small or too large. But we're asking you to consider, prayerfully consider, trusting God for a specific amount of money that's a sacrificial gift for you over these 24 months for this specific purpose. Last week, we had several hundred thousand dollars pledged, but we believe that God wants everyone to play a part in this so that as we go into that new space, we continue to see it filled up by God with people that need to know Jesus Christ in personal relationship and families are restored and marriages are restored and sons and daughters come home. You play a part in that as you help to fund 
uh, the, the endeavor that we're in right now. So we encourage you to participate on some level. Take those pledge cards with you and find a way that you can be a part of what God's doing here. Today I'm excited because we're continuing our series, What I'd Tell You Over Coffee. We started this a few weeks ago, and I told you that kind of the heart behind this is that we, we've gotten to the place with our church that we're no longer able, like the size of our church, I cannot have coffee with everybody in our church. I'd love to. I love coffee, and I love you, but I would be the most overly caffeinated person in our community. And so what do we do? Let's just kind of act like we're having a cup of coffee together right now. I've got my cup here. Hopefully you've got a cup on the way in. Uh, but just let's have a conversation. Let's talk about some things that we believe the Lord may be talking to us about, leading us to, and really helping us to apply in our personal relationship with God and for our church in this season and in the next. So we started a few weeks ago, and I've really been excited about the conversation that it's generated. And so today, to continue this series, I want to talk about my favorite person in Scripture, my favorite character of the Old Testament. It's a guy by the name of David. There's great books that have been written by David. There's some bad books that have been written by David. I wrote a book 10 years ago about David. It's somewhere between bad and good, uh, but it's out there. It's called You're Not As Good As They Say You Are, But You're Not That Bad Either. So there's a little bit of a pun in what I said. Nobody got it. That's fine. That didn't land in the first service either. But uh, no, there's a lot of books. I read a book last year by Mark Rutland called David the Great. Great, great book. Um, that really kind of illuminated some new things in the story of David, and, uh, and I enjoyed reading that book. Uh, and today I want us to look at perhaps the most famous moment, the, the most famous story in David's life. This is David with Goliath. And I recognize that even saying that, you're probably familiar with this story in intricate detail, even if you're not a faith person, Bible person, religious person, because this David and Goliath story and theme have gotten into all of the various parts of culture. It's, it's in the sports context, it's in movies, it's in books, it's in conversation. It feels like whenever you're up against, you know, big, like up against a big enemy, when you're fighting against a, uh, something that's bigger than you, when you're competing against a team that's better than you, like it's David versus Goliath. And so I recognize that many of us know that, or you've heard this story so much, so often, that perhaps you could preach it better than me today, but I encourage you, just for a moment, just kind of throw all that out and act like you don't know the story. Just, just let this be a brand new retelling of this incredible truths and these incredible stories from Scripture, because I believe that there are some really simple things, even before we get to David defeating Goliath, which, spoiler alert, he does at the end of the story, even before we get to that point that God may want to speak to us to help us understand what we do in the battles that we are fighting. And I don't know your story. I don't know all of your story. Some of you, I know your stories more than others, but I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you've walked through, what you're in today, or what you may be walking into this next week. But I do believe that there are some truths from this story that will help us as we apply them so that we know how to live, how to trust God, and how to find victory in the battles that we're fighting. And that's really, if I could sum it all up, this is what I would tell you over coffee. You're doing better than you think you are. If I could tell you anything over coffee, what I would tell you is quit playing as if you're going to lose in life and actually start to take the posture that God desires for you to find victory. God desires for you to win in life. And I'm not talking about this name it and claim it. You can have everything you want. I'm saying when we're talking about the spiritual battles that we're facing, God has given you the victory. And so let's position ourselves as if we've already won so that it changes the way that we approach the battles that we're in and the enemies that we face. 
And so I'm going to do a couple of different things. I'm going to read some of the story. I'm going to tell some of the story. But I want to start right in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along in the Bible. You can go to an app. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled in Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Soko and Azekah. Say that three times real fast. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of L.A. and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And right up front, what I would say to you is sometimes you know exactly who you're fighting. There are battles that we fight and we don't know who the enemy is. Like, we don't know what's going on. We don't know who it is. We don't know what we're fighting. We just feel oppression. We just feel something coming against us. We just know that there's like this, this, this heaviness that we're seeming to face, and we don't know what it is. But other times, it feels exactly like this. You're standing on one side. You see the enemy on the other side. You know exactly what's happening. You know the score here. Battle lines have been drawn. It is time to go to war, and you see who you're fighting. And so what I would tell you is don't allow, kind of what we talked about earlier in the service, don't allow what you see with your eyes to cause you to approach that battle as if you've already lost. What you see or what you may hear in this battle before you even go to war can sometimes create a perception in you about how this thing's even going to play out. This whole David and Goliath thing in sports I think about when I played sports when I, was, when I was younger, or I think about when my kids are playing sports now and we show up to the field. You can't help but look at the other team and kind of, you know, size them up versus sizing you up. And you go, wow, they're bigger than us. Wow, we're bigger than them. Um, I got one of the worst beatings of my life in a baseball game when I was in high school. When we showed up to a field to play a team that didn't have uniforms, the field looked like it was a mess. Nobody had mowed the grass in three weeks. There were rocks on the infield. We walked in with our nice, clean uniforms. We, we were on a real manicured field back at our school. We walked in. We were like, Psh, we got this. They beat us to death. Because we walked in thinking that we knew what was going to happen before it even happened. And what I would tell you is even when you see the enemy, even when you know who you're fighting and what you're fighting, then you have to understand who you are more than focusing just on who they are. So we see that they're, they're on one side of the valley, the enemy's on the other side of the valley, and then the enemy has a name. The enemy has a name. Look at this in verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back, and his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point, uh, the iron point of that spear weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, I realize some of the words we just used, you don't use on an everyday basis. You don't measure things in shekels. And you may not carry a javelin with you wherever you go. And if you do, people probably look at you a little weird, right? And so there's some things that we read in that. We go, well, how do I apply this to my present circumstances? How do I apply this to the battles that I'm fighting? I would say that as we read through this, we recognize those moments when we go up against an enemy and the enemy seems bigger than us and more equipped than we are. When we're going up against somebody that seems like they've got more to offer in this battle than we do. It seems like they're more equipped. They're larger. Now, when we talk about how large Goliath is, one of my favorite features on our kids' hallway, there is the, is the like, measure, measuring stick along the wall where the, you'll see the kids, they kind of go up to it, and, and you see David, and you see Zacchaeus, and you see Goliath at the top of that. 
based on what we're reading here and from various uh, extra biblical sources as we try to determine Goliath's height, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is kind of the oldest manuscripts we have of certain portions of the text that we hold as the Bible, and some of the other first century writings, and from uh, an extra a, a scholar of that day named Josephus that wrote about biblical events, we believe that what's written here is that he was approximately seven feet tall, maybe just under seven feet tall. But there are some other biblical sources and a lot of Jewish sources that say that the measurement was actually somewhere closer to nine or nine and a half feet tall. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the fact that Goliath was taller than me, right? This is a big guy. And the fact that David, who he was going up against, was not very tall. At this point in David's life, he was a young man. So even as he grew in stature, at this point in the battle that they were about to fight, David was very small. He was a, a smaller teenage-type boy. And so the, the, the size discrepancy is something that the author wants you to understand, that Goliath was very, very, very tall. And David was not tall. He was smaller in stature and in size and in age. And so Goliath's huge, and he's got all this weaponry, he's got all this stuff, and so you go, okay, well, he's more equipped, he's bigger, and he's got more to offer in this battle. And not only that, now Goliath starts talking. Look at this in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I, come, if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Look at verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. This enemy that David's got to fight, not only is he tall, not only is he bigger, not only does he have great weaponry to fight against David and all of the Israelites, he's also got swagger. He's got some self-confidence. He's got that kind of like persona where he's okay trash talking because he fully believes, he's confident he's going to win this battle. I mean, he gives both sides of the argument. He's like, you know, if you guys send somebody and they beat me, then we'll be your servants. But I defy you to find somebody who can come and fight me because if I beat you... You become our servants. This Israelite-Philistine battle, this is not the only time in the Old Testament that it's waged. We see it across several different stories and narratives of the Old Testament. This is just the moment, that pinnacle moment, where it's actually not just about Israel and the Philistines. It's about David and his uh, place among God's people in this moment. It's about him ascending to the throne to become king. In 1 Samuel 16, we saw that he was anointed to be king. By the prophet Samuel, God sent. Saul has, been, uh, has, has lost the Lord's favor, the Lord's blessing, the Lord's anointing, but he's still leading, he's still in power. He's not yet been physically removed from the throne. And so now you actually have two kings at play. Nobody knows, though, that David is the king in waiting. And so this battle, this story is about something larger than me and you. It's larger than David. It's, it's larger than Goliath. This is about what God is doing in the story of his Israelite people. And I think sometimes what you and I miss is that in the battles that we are fighting, it is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than the argument you're having with your spouse right now. 
It's bigger than the argument you're having on the job. It's bigger than the things that are happening around you. The story that God is writing in your life and through your life right now tells a larger story, and it's his story, not yours and not mine. And this moment of battle between David and Goliath, where the enemy comes with swagger, where he comes with confidence, where he's talking trash even as he's bigger, even as he carries great weapons, we see this confidence that comes from him. And every day for 40 days, the Philistine takes his stand and makes the same statement. I'm telling you, that would wear you down. That would wear you down for 40 days to hear somebody come and talk to you and, and threaten you and, and try, to, try to get at you and get under your skin and try to, try to pull you into battle that you don't feel equipped for, that you don't feel like you're confident that you can win. I don't know what your battle is. I don't know what issues you face in your home. I don't know what health issues you may be facing. I don't know what things scare you, the anxiety or fear that you wrestle with on a regular basis. I don't know what temptations continue to surface in your life day after day after day. But 40 days in a row, as your enemy stands up and tries to convince you that you're going to lose and calls you into battle, you would probably do, I know I would probably do exactly what these Israelites are doing, cowering in fear. Not stepping out to fight. Not saying we trust and believe in the strength of Almighty God to bring victory in our lives. No, we're afraid. And so we hide and we cower in fear. And this is the scene to which David shows up. Now, how did David get there? David did not wake up on that day convinced that this is the day he killed Goliath. There's nothing in the story that tells us he knows today's the day. I think if we could have our way and we could know that today was the day that we would realize our greatest victory in life, I think we would conduct ourselves a little differently. We'd wake up, we'd put on good clothes just in case we got interviewed on the news after this big battle was over, right? And we'd be excited, we'd brush our teeth, comb our hair, we'd be ready to go, we'd make sure we got weapons in the car, we've got you know, good cell phone batteries so we could text our friends after this thing's like, we're going to be ready to go. That's not what happened on this day to David. You know how David got to battle? He woke up that day and did what he had done the previous days. He went out and tended his father's sheep. Even after he had been anointed to be king over all of Israel, he was tending his father's sheep. There was no level of faithfulness that was beneath him. And dad shows up that day and says, hey, your older brothers are out fighting with Saul and Saul's army, and they're fighting against the enemy, the Philistines, and I want you to go check on them. And when you go, I want you to carry this picnic basket with you of grain and cheese. That's not the scene that we see play out in the movies as we're anticipating him gathering his slingshot and getting ready. All he's carrying at that point, other than maybe the slingshot that's in his belt, is he's carrying a picnic basket. It doesn't seem like something that's setting up a story of great victory over a great enemy, and yet it's faithfulness exemplified. Faithfulness day after day. Some of us, we arrive at our moments of great battle and we want to see great victory and we have not prepared in the days before by spending time in God's word and spending time in God's presence in prayer and personal worship. And so when we show up to fight great battles, we don't have the weapons we need for victory because we have not been faithful in the days before. And what I would say to you is it's that faithful living day after day after day, not perfection, pursuit. What am I pursuing? Am I growing? Am I closer to God today than I was six months ago? And if not, why not? Do I trust God more now than I did a year ago? And if not, why not? Days of faithfulness, day after day. And when the father says something that seems beneath the next king of Israel, will you carry this picnic basket of grain and cheese to check on your brothers? 
you just find a way to always say yes to the Father. He picks up the basket and he makes his way to the army camp where Saul and his brothers and the other soldiers are there. And David comes in and he sees what's happening before him. His brothers and those before him are cowering in fear and he hears the words of Goliath and he begins to ask this question, well, why won't anybody fight him? Like, what happens if someone would stand up and fight him? They say, hey, you know, the, Saul's already said that he would give great riches and he, he would give a daughter of his to be married. And, and as David's asking these questions, it doesn't appear that he's asking these questions so that he can realize all of these gains. He's just trying to figure out why no one would stand up and fight. And then we read this in verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. When I read this, it breaks my heart. Leave this up here for just a second, guys. It breaks my heart because this is David's older brother. If anyone should be on his side, if anyone should be in his corner, if anyone should be supporting him, it should be family. It should be his brother. This is the same guy. That when he stood before Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, as God was using all of Jesse's sons to be considered, they were the nominees to be the next king. When Samuel saw Eliab, he said, surely this is the one. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a fighter. He looks like the next king. And God says, no, no, no. You, man, looks on the outside, but I see on the inside. We actually see what God was revealing the chapter before, those inside issues in Eliab. We see his insecurity. We see his, his personal fear and what he lacked as he stands before David, and David is inquiring about what would happen if he should choose to go and fight. Eliab now goes on the offensive, attacking David's character, and it says that anger burns within him. Jesus would come on the scene later, and in the book of Matthew tell us that this kind of anger is the equivalent of murder, that there's something inside of him that's so disgusted with what David might do and might consider that he becomes angry, he burns with anger. And then we see him questioning David's character. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? You ever met anybody that just knew exactly what to say to make you feel like no matter what you're doing is not enough? Who'd you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? It's not even in the middle of town. You're out there on the hillside by yourself doing nothing for nobody. It doesn't matter. It's just a few. It's just a little. It's not enough. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Here's the problem. What we learned the chapter before is that God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. And that David was anointed to be the next king because he was a man after God's own heart. His heart was not wicked. His heart was pure. And my question is for all of us, are we the kind of people who are seeking a purity of heart? Or are we just seeking the external posture where people think we have it all together? Are we allowing God to do the interior work when God needs someone to go and fight battles? He knows that you and I are the kind of people he can call on because of what is on the inside of us. So Eliab attacks his character. We don't really have the end of that discussion necessarily. David, as the younger brother, kind of says what my younger brother said to me some in the early part of my life and what I watch my youngest children say to oldest children sometimes. It's like, what, can I even talk? Can I even say anything? Hush. Right? I see that play out in my house. This is exactly what brothers are doing here, even in this biblical story. I love the reality of that. But word gets to Saul. Word gets to King Saul that there is a guy, David, who is walking around 
talking about the possibility that he would go and fight. Up to this point, we don't know that in the 40 days anyone else has volunteered. And so this is what it says in verse 33. Saul replied, you are not able, he's talking to David, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. While Eliab attacked David's character, Saul is attacking his competence. You can't even fight the battle that's right in front of you. You don't have the skills. You don't have the gifts. You're not old enough. You're too old. You don't, you don't have what it takes to be successful in this battle. And listen, I know that there are going to be people in your life, and there are people in mine, who will question that you have enough good stuff in you to do what God is asking you to do. As you fight for victory in your life, there are going to be people that question your ability to accomplish those things that you're trusting and believing God to do. And what we see Saul doing right here, even though Saul was anointed to be king at a young age, he didn't recognize that David had been anointed to be the next king at this young age. Saul is using age as the discriminating factor. And let me just say to you here at our church, we don't want to use age on either end of the spectrum or anywhere in between to be a discriminating factor to believe that God can use people. We don't want people to say that people are too young to be used or too old to be used. We believe that every generation matters. That's why we're Generations Church, because we believe that there's a place for you here and that God can do extraordinary things in and through you. You're not too young. You're not too old. And even if you find yourself in between, I heard Pastor Craig Rochelle say one time, like, when was I right? I used to be too young. Now I'm a little bit too old. Was it like a random Tuesday when I was 41, when I was just the right age to be and do what God wanted me to do? And maybe you feel like that's where you're at. You're just not sure where you land. I would say that here at this place, God desires to use you, and we believe that God can. And so Saul says, okay, here's what you're going to do. If you're going to go... Then I want to know, like, how do you think you're going to be successful? And this is what David responds to him in verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul actually tries to give David his armor. Put in your mind the picture of you wearing your dad's bathrobe or your dad's suit. Or maybe you're wearing your mom's dress with high heels when you were little and it, it just doesn't quite fit you. This is the picture we have of Saul saying to David, well, if you're going to go, you've got to have armor. You've got to have weaponry. Here, put mine on. David tries it. He said, this won't work. This is not mine. This is not who I am. And I would say, quit trying to fight your battles in someone else's armor. God has uniquely gifted and called you for the specific battles that he intends you to fight. And he's given you everything that you need to be successful in that battle because it does not depend on your strength and your ability and your gifts. It all depends on him. That's what David said to Saul. 
He said, when I was out tending my father's sheep, there were some enemies that came to rob us of the sheep that were entrusted into my care. And so I chased after the lion and the bear, and I went after them. And when I did, I struck them, and then I grabbed them. I seized them by the hair, and I was able to get back what was rightfully mine, and I was able to kill the enemy that had come to attack me. And this enemy that stands before me will discover the same fate because of what God has previously done in my life that gives me the confidence I have today. It's the same confidence we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're standing about to be thrown into the fiery furnace because King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down and worship. And they say, no, we won't do it. We will not defile ourselves. And they say, here's what you need to know. This is what God's called us to. We will not do that. We will maintain our purity of worship. And God will deliver us. But even if he does not. That kind of confidence, that trust and believe that God will bring victory in and through our lives and the battles that we face. But we trust that God is writing a bigger story and that he's in charge anyway. And when I listen to David telling Saul this, I can't help but feel like I'm watching a scene from the movie Braveheart. I get so excited. I mean, even when I was reading, I sounded like Samuel L. What's his name? Samuel Earl Jones, right? That's what in my head, that's what it sounds like. It's like this manly, manly voice. I'm like, oh, let's go. Let's fight. Let's do this. Why is nobody else? Let's go with David. Let's do it right now. Because here's the deal. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. You're not hoping that God will come through. You've seen God come through previously, so you know he can come through again. The Bible tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're not leaning in some, on someone else's armor and their battle plans. You are trusting in a God who has equipped you to be successful in battle because it's his story. It's his plan that he is writing in the world. And so we come into this battle. And we look across the way and we see Goliath. And he's bigger than us. He has better weapons than we do. He's talking trash, man. He's got swagger. He's got confidence. And everybody around us believes that we're going to lose. They've threatened our character. They've threatened our competence. And we stand there in that moment all alone on the battlefield. And if we win, they're going to come running behind us and help take hold of the victory. But before victory comes, we're left there by ourselves to fight. And yet we are not by ourselves. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us what we're actually fighting. This is what it says. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And what we've talked about all day long is that even when it looks like we're surrounded, that God would open our spiritual eyes to see that he has surrounded our enemies. And even as we stand before an enemy that seems greater than us, that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the enemy that I'm fighting. And so we stand with full confidence to believe that a God who has ever done this before can do this again. And so David goes down into the riverbed. And I've never understood it. I wish I could come to grips with it. There's a ton of theological study that explains it, and none of it still makes sense to me. He picks up five rocks. He didn't need five. He's only going to need one. But he picks up five rocks. And he yells at that giant. 
He said, listen, you can talk all the trash you want to. You can have all the swagger that you want to. But what you need to know is I stand here not as a young boy. I stand here as a representative of Almighty God, trading on his name with his strength and his power, and I will defeat you. And he puts that rock in that slingshot. And he twirls it around, and he lets it loose. Down he goes. And sure enough, all those guys that were hiding in the shadows come running out, and they chase the Philistines to eventually bring them back to come and be their servants. It's a powerful, powerful picture. But in the hustle and bustle of all of the Israelite army chasing after the Philistine army, again, there's only two people left on the battlefield. The Philistines took off running that way, and the Israelites go chasing them. And David's still standing right here, and there lays Goliath. And David decides that the victory is not yet complete. And so he walks over to Goliath and picks up Goliath's sword and chops off his head. Now, maybe that's too gruesome for you today. Maybe that makes you a little nauseous as you think about what you're going to eat for lunch. I apologize. It's right there in the Bible. Blame God. Don't blame me. But I love that David recognized that a fallen enemy did not represent complete victory in his mind. And there are some battles that you have previously won, but you have not yet taken hold of the complete victory that was yours. You prayed a prayer. You felt like God answered that prayer, and he was going to give you victory, but you didn't cut the giant's head off. There was a temptation. There was a struggle, and you felt like God delivered you. God gave you victory. And yet you stayed in the relationship. Yet you continued in that path. Yet you stayed in that place. Yet you continued to do that same thing. And you were hoping and believing that you were strong enough instead of just cutting the giant's head off. And what I would tell you today is that it's not enough just to hit the giant in the head with a rock. You need to take the, the tools that he was trying to fight against you with and throw them right back at him and achieve full and complete victory in whatever area of your life you feel like you continue to fight this battle. The victory is the Lord's. It's not yours. Honor God by seeing it through to completion. If I were sitting at coffee with you, we were sitting down, knee to knee, having a cup of coffee, I'd tell you, you're doing better than you think you are. And even if you're not sure that you're doing good at all, I would remind you that it's not your strength that brings victory, it's God's strength. I would try to remind you that even as you look across at that enemy, even as you see what you think you're fighting against, you don't really understand that this is a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's good versus evil. This battle's been going on long before you got here, and it will continue long after you're gone. Me too. And so in this moment, in this moment, we fight. We fight because it matters. Your marriage matters. Your parenting matters. It matters. The way you invest your money, it matters. The way that you conduct your life, it matters. The conversations, your speech, it matters. It all matters. Days of faithfulness that seem like they're being wasted are seasons of preparation as you stand before a lion or a bear who's trying to rob you of something that is rightfully yours, go to battle. Go to war. 
Don't let little days be wasted because you never know which day you're going to stand before Goliath and need the confidence that comes from knowing that God can because God's already done it. It matters. And so if we were sitting together having a cup of coffee, I would tell you this. You might be outmatched, but you aren't overcome. You might be outmatched, but you aren't overcome. The enemy seems bigger. He's got bigger weapons, better weapons. It feels like you've lost a few battles in a row. But you will win this war. Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in whatever you're fighting right now. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you'd say to me, Jeremy, for me, I know that what you're describing may be true, but I am not in relationship with a God who brings victory. I need him to forgive my sins and lead my life, be the Lord of my life. I need to be in relationship with him. I need every day to be a day in pursuit of faithfulness and relationship, growing relationship with him. So in those moments of battle, I can trust in who he is and who he is in me. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I want that to change today. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, nobody's looking around right now. Just between you and God, Jeremy, I want you to pray for me today and in the days ahead because I need victory in some area of my life. I'm fighting a battle. There's something going on, and I need victory, and I want you to pray for me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. So many hands. So many hands. God, we thank you today that you hear us when we pray. We thank you, God, that you are more than enough. We thank you, God, that we don't fight battles on our own. We thank you, God, that we are not alone. You promised never to leave us nor forsake us. So now we pray for those who lifted their hand today to acknowledge that you, that they want you to be the Lord and Savior of their life, forgive their sins, and lead their lives from this moment forward. Change their eternity now. And God, I pray for every person that lifted their hands to ask you to help them find victory today in some area of their lives, in some circumstance that they find themselves in. God, we believe that you're more than enough, and we ask you now to help them to find that victory that they seek. Let it not be on their own strength or their own efforts, but God, in you alone. So God, we thank you for that in advance of the victory that we seek. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.